Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. On each episode, our experts will answer a question from you, our listeners. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you're around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That's why I'm offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. The High Truth Season 1 finale is sponsored by CCR, the Center for Community Research, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. CCR is a San Diego-based nonprofit organization that has been recognized at the state and national level for community work on opioids, prescription drugs, methamphetamines, youth marijuana prevention, and data evaluation. So hi, everybody, and welcome to the High Truths on Drugs and Addiction season finale. I'm so excited. A year ago, I set a goal to host a podcast. I didn't know much about producing a show or the art of interviewing. I confess I was nervous and I'm just a doctor, but I wanted to play show host. And I realized I'm not a professional actor or journalist who is smooth with words, but I have a mission of using the podcast platform to learn from experts, to educate, and to move an agenda that saves lives. Overdoses can be prevented, substance use disorders can be treated, and prevention, prevention is the vaccine for addiction. Now, a year into High Truths, we have over 13,000 downloads, but more importantly, the drug policies we promote are seeking traction. Join me on the premiere of High Truths Season 2 coming January 3rd, 2022, as I reflect on some of the successes of the past year, failures, and hope for the future. Listen next year to learn why I'm so jealous of Shigella, a bacteria that causes diarrhea. A podcast once a week for an entire year is a nice accomplishment, and I'm so happy to celebrate that with you, our listeners, and many of you are as passionate on the subject of addiction as I am. This High Truth finale is dedicated to you and to answering your questions. We are on a Zoom meeting with experts and audience, and you can start right now throughout the show by raising your hand or using the chat to ask questions. Um, But before we get started, I have a big favor to ask of everyone. If you have an iPhone, please go to the purple Apple podcast icon, find high truths on drugs and addiction and scroll down and give it five stars. I have no shame. I'm a little shame, but those five stars go a long way in promoting the show and increasing the podcast ranking. If you figured out how to do the five-star thing and you're sitting next to someone with an iPhone, do me a favor, take your friend's phone and give that podcast five stars on their device as well. And when you get home uh, with your family, take your spouse's or children's phone. Oh, that may be asking too much, but I won't complain if you do. The CDC announced 
that our predicted 12-month overdose rate has exceeded 100,000 people. That's like an airplane a day falling out of the sky. More people under the age of 45 died of fentanyl than died of COVID. And while fentanyl is the driver of deaths, I have not met a single patient that used fentanyl that did not start out priming their brain at a young age with marijuana, not one. This crisis is acknowledged at the highest levels of government. The White House Office of National Drug Control Policy announced a historic investment of $4 billion in an American rescue plan. And locally, people on the ground are taking action. They are, as author Sam Quinones described in his latest book, The Least of Us. They are regular citizens devastated by the tragedy that addiction has in their own circle and relentless in trying to make a difference to improve their community. They are my heroes. In the middle are people like me, professionals who are working in an imperfect system to treat addiction, others in public safety who do important work in decreasing the availability of drugs and are flooding that are flooding our borders, and drug prevention specialists who are at the vaccine of our drug epidemic. The solution to the crisis, I believe, will come from linking all three groups, the large federal dollar investment, the citizen advocates, and professionals. So now let's hear from our esteemed experts today as they share high truth highlights of 2021. Let me introduce them. Dr. Bertha Madras is a professor of psychobiology at Harvard Medical School and former deputy director of demand reduction at the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, ONDCP. She has numerous scientific publications, courses, patents, and awards. I follow Dr. Madras's service at ONDCP and she's been an invaluable mentor. Dr. Ken Finn, practices pain medicine in Colorado. He is the editor of the first medical textbook on cannabis and medicine, is president of the American Board of Pain Medicine, and is my colleague as vice president of Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. And Joe Eberstein is a certified prevention specialist and member of SAMHSA Region 9 Prevention Technology Transfer Center. He's a program manager for the San Diego Marijuana Prevention Institute and my colleague at CCR Center of Community Research. So let's start with you, Dr. Madras. Can you share with us some high truths, highlights of 2021? I'd like to begin with something general and then move to something more specific. I think what's fueling our current national crisis are shifting perceptions, legal, social, medical, and regulatory changes. We are, we are witnessing advocates for legalization claiming the war on drugs is not only a failure, but it's the root cause of addiction and our overdose deaths. We are seeing advocates saying don't stigmatize drug use. In the past, we heard them say, don't stigmatize people with a substance use disorder. And now that's been expanded to don't stigmatize drug use. We've heard calls for normalizing use through legalization, through greater access. And we've heard calls that all we need is to regulate wisely, and then our problems will go away. We've, called, we've heard calls for, let's accept use as one of the normative behaviors that human beings have done for millennia, and all we have to do is reduce the harmful effects of drug use. So we are in a new phase in the United States which always expands to the globe 
uh, because what we do gets aped and mimicked by not many nations, but certainly some key nations. We're in a new phase of polarizing policy debates, and it pits, acts, it, it pits advocates for unrestrained access, legalization, commercialization, against opponents who voice caution and restraint. The opponents view loosening legal controls as leading to a much greater crisis. So what we need to do is learn our lessons from our distant and our recent past, past to inform this debate. And I think it's really critical for us to look at what's happened to the opioid crisis, to marijuana legalization, and also to project into the future the coming wave of hallucinogens, both as a first pass to medicalize them and then to legalize them. And what I'd like to do more specifically, which I will do during our conversation, if there's time, is to discuss some really low, low and easy lifts in terms of prevention. And one of the foremost ones is to prevent marijuana use during pregnancy. I'll leave it at that and let others wait. That's great. Thank you, Dr. Madras. And now Dr. Ken Finn. Share some high truth highlights of 2021. Well, um, thank you for listening in and thank you, uh, Dr. Lev and Dr. Madras and Joe for having me here. Uh, Dr. Lev, you stole my thunder uh, because, you know, the CDC data is, is relatively recent and the fact that we've had over 100,000 people die from drug overdoses in one year is a very frightening statistic. I find it somewhat interesting that despite the ongoing rise in drug overdoses over time, it strongly correlates with more states legalizing for marijuana use with one of the platforms is legalize marijuana for medical use and our drug problem will get better and go away. Despite that, the industry has turned a completely blind eye to the data. We are seeing an ongoing increase in people dying from drug overdoses, correlating very strongly with more states legalizing, knowing that the primary reason people are using marijuana is for pain control. And all of the scientific data to date simply does not support the use of cannabis as a, an effective pain reliever or an opioid substitute, especially with dispensary cannabis that really has never been adequately studied as a, as a pain reliever or an opioid substitute. And all the data up to this point says, no, it's not very helpful. So we are now contending with what I would describe as the war on the war on drugs, because now people are calling that as a, a big problem, the war on drugs, and now there's a war on that discussion. So my, my place in this discussion is it's very frustrating for me because I honestly believe knowing that of, of all the systematic reviews of the systematic reviews for the indications for the use of marijuana is for pain. And so as a pain medicine doctor, the reason I went down this road is because my patients coming in to me on large doses of opioids that we have to try to wean them off 
uh, are using marijuana for pain tell me it doesn't help for the pain, which is very consistent with the medical literature. But the promotion for the use in pain is ubiquitous and, and promoted by the industry and the media. So then these patients end up in your world of emergency medicine. And then they end up in the world of the addiction medicine. And then they end up in the hands of adolescents and young adults whose brains are developing. So my perspective is that the root of a lot of the problems we're seeing with marijuana stem from the promotion of its benefit for pain that is still completely unfounded. So I, I continue to do what we do in terms of education. Um, and, I, and I'm all for research and they say there's not enough research and we all are very well aware there's tens of thousands of articles researching this uh, substance despite its current classification as schedule one. Um, I, I really think it's a, a sad state of affairs that we have uh, promotion of cannabis, easy access to youth, the development of new cannabinoids that have absolutely no guardrails on them, such as Delta-8, uh, THC-0, and a very interesting parallel, uh, if anybody hasn't heard of the THC-0, which is derived from hemp, uh, is the O-acetate of THC. It's funny that heroin is the O-acetate of morphine. I find it a very interesting parallel because the THC zero is three times as strong as Delta nine THC and erodes the muscle coordination of animals twice as much as it does in humans. So I think we have, a, there's so many effects and I think I would agree 100% with Dr. Madras on uh, use during pregnancy and lactation, developing brain of the fetus. We are seeing the emerging data on what happens to those offspring, both in human and animal models that is simply not good down the road into middle childhood, uh, adolescence, and young adulthood uh, with behavior problems, memory problems, aggression, drug seeking, etc. Um, and the data is becoming much more clear. And unfortunately, the mainstream media hasn't touched on that. And they've kind of swept it under the rug. And I think the education piece is, is paramount. And I'll, I'll probably leave it at that and open it up to more questions. Great. Thank you, Dr. Finn. And now, uh, Joe Eberstein, High Truth Highlights. Well, of course, uh, I am very honored to be part of this esteemed panel. And uh, probably one of my favorite highlights from High Truths was our visit over to the marijuana storefront, um, where we had a very vigorous conversation with the owners. Um, uh, and unfortunately learned that they're making tons of money. But um, I, I wanna state that there is hope. Um, I work at the community level and I know that at the community level, people are listening. Um, and I sit in community meetings and I do the ground level work and I work with an amazing team over at CCR, uh, Dr. Lev being one of them, uh, and then Sarah behind the scenes here doing all the technology. You know, we have record overdoses nationally and in the county, and this crisis should be on every news station every night of the week and on every print media. Uh, unfortunately, it's not, but Dr. Lev developed a way around that with this podcast, and we're all going to have to be 
creative in getting our message out to a media that has silenced us for other dramatic media headlines that they're focused on. They seem to be focused on one thing at a time. Um, while we have record overdoses, I recently witnessed an overdose in my uh, at the pharmacy where I was. Um, I know it's happening here, and it was very scary to see that we're starting to see 12 and 13-year-olds um, dying from fentanyl overdoses. Um, we also have disastrous public health decisions being made in the state of California, such as declaring marijuana an essential business during a respiratory pandemic, uh, making tons of money for them while shutting down coping mechanisms for our young people, the gyms, the beaches, the yoga studios, and only keeping the liquor stores and the pot shops open. Um, now more than ever, uh, my colleagues in prevention need to step up and they are stepping up. Um, we need to start our prevention early. It needs to be consistent with healthy choices and coping skills, and it needs to go out through the school career. Uh, we need to use fact-based and science. Uh, you know, I find communities that have one or two public health champions uh, usually get the resources. And it's wonderful to see that one teacher can actually make a difference if they really, you know, ask for the resources, they generally get it. My dad used to say the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Uh, we also need to make prevention and treatment a marketable career that people wanna get involved in and get engaged in. Um, we need them to know that this is a career, it's just not a starting off point while people are young, but there is a way to actually uh, really make a difference with uh, prevention and treatment. Um, and again, with fentanyl, fentanyl has just changed the landscape around substance use. And um, to me, that that's a whole discussion that needs to happen separate, but uh, I'm honored to be here and I'll pass it back to Dr. Lev. Great. Thank you, Joe. Yeah. Um, on one of our podcasts, uh, our producer, Dave Rivas and Joe and I went and I think what was really remarkable is they acknowledged the harms of marijuana. And they even told us a story of a, of a woman who bought products and drove her car off and died. And their reaction was, well, that's terrible, but it's not our fault. We're just following the law. And compare it to anybody in the healthcare industry. If, if you had a patient who had a bad reaction to anything, the first thing you would do is say, not, oh, well, I'm sorry, the FDA approves this. We would say, stop it. We're not going to do this anymore. We're going to investigate and make sure it doesn't happen again. I mean, it just, it really struck me, the mind of someone in medicine versus someone in, in business. Um, and uh, that, that was interesting. So now we really want to hear questions from you. And I do see a wonderful hand raised by Heidi Swan. So Heidi, if you want to unmute yourself, I would love to hear your question. Hello, Dr. Lev and Dr. Finn and Dr. Madras and Joe Everstein. I'm a big fan of all of you, all of your work. And so thank you so much for being here. Uh, Dr. Lev, you and I are collaborating together on legislation 
to propose to provide warning labels on marijuana products. Can you please talk about how much consumers, patients need to know about the risk to physical health and mental health with these products? Yes, um, thank you for that. And Heidi, we're all fans of yours too, because you are one of these relentless people who is not gonna give up no matter what. Um, so really thank you to you for, for, for being persistent and getting this and hopefully we'll 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 get attention in in california which is i know your your vision but we want to get consumer protection for marijuana products and what what we thought that we would start is um try to do something that's a white hat issue that people don't um you know, argue about uh, saying the marijuana in California is like the M word. It's legal. We're not disputing that here, but we want people to make an informed decision. And one thing that most people don't know about that most doctors don't know about and pharmacists don't know about is the drug interactions that marijuana has both THC and CBD with many medications. If you go to drugs.org, you will find that there are over 500 drug interactions uh, between CBD uh, and, very, and various different prescriptions. And these drug interactions can be life-threatening. If you are on a blood thinner and you're using uh, marijuana, you could have an internal bleeding and die. And we've seen that in the emergency department. We've seen people who have internal bleeding time and time again, coming into the hospital, people, you know, they get blood transfusions, they get endoscopy and nobody, you know, figures out what's happening because they don't realize the drug interactions. And one of the projects I'm working on with Joe is we found 17 different pharmacies and we gave them an infomercial, um, info card, uh, just to be aware, just to know if they're, you know, to know about drug interactions. And, but we also asked patients and pharmacists, um, you know, were you offended by this uh, education? Do you want to know more? Do you think that that's important? And we hear, we are hearing that people want to know this information so much so that they want to reproduce our card and give it to their doctors and have more education. We're asking for more of this education, not offense by that. So that's kind of what, you know, Heidi, you're, you're um, leading the charge really to uh, add consumer protection. Um, so at the pharmacy level, for patients who are picking up their normal prescriptions and they don't know that they have these interactions at the dispensary, at the shop level. So people know about, especially the mental health effects of drug driving effects, um, um, people that the cardiac effects, people don't know about that. And then the third part of it is to, for the part that's medical marijuana should be part of the um, prescription drug monitoring system. The prescription drug monitoring system is a computerized system um, uh, available in all 50 states. Um, there are 16 states now that are looking into this, eight states that have already implemented this. And this was established during the peak of the opioid crisis where you know patients were doctor shopping and there were high doses of opioids and, and people you know, telling their doctors, you need to check your PDMP system before you prescribe opioids. Well, you know, that's important and it, the system worked, but we can't treat marijuana differently. If you're gonna call it medical marijuana, it needs to be treated as a medicine. And there are many drug interactions and it makes a difference because you would adjust people's medicines based on that, but you wouldn't know that if the doctor doesn't know um, you have that. And that's why uh, we're gonna advocate that that happens in California. And you've heard it here first, it may not go anywhere, but it, it's a dream. So Heidi dreams big and I love to follow. Thank you for that question. Thank Heidi. you for joining for uh, because like I don't think that any of these meetings would happen if uh, Ronit Love was 
not going to be on it. So thank you so much. And uh, let's see, we have a uh, Joe uh, Dokes um, has a little message for us in the chat. Um, he's saying that there are 7,000 illegal grows in Shasta County, California. Surprise, surprise. And he asks about um, something that you kind of talked about, Ken, about the Delta 8, 10, and 0 synthesized from CBD. It's kind of a slippery slope. And maybe um, Dr. Madras can talk about this too. Is like, well, hemp is legal, but yet does that mean um, Delta 8 is legal and, and Delta 0 is legal? And, and, uh, and we haven't even studied this stuff. What do you guys think? And would you like to go first and I'll follow up? Uh, I just had a comment on what uh, Dr. Lev was saying regarding medical marijuana. I believe that if any medication that is available uh, for prescription had the side effect profile that cannabis has, it would be pulled from the market. It creates, uh, it's a teratogen, it, it's a teratogen. It has genotoxicity. Uh, can, uh, the data is showing the emerging data and documented data on uh, heart attack, stroke, arrhythmia, particularly in young adults, uh, the effect on the de developing brain, small birth weight, low IQ. I mean, they pulled lead from paint when IQ dropped four points. Uh, so if it had, if it was considered a medication with the side effect profile that it has, it would be pulled from the market. And that's one point that I wanted to get across. Yeah, I, I'd just like to add on to that and then go into um, the uh, variants, the Delta-8 and the, um, the ether-linked uh, THC. Um, so the problem is, and, and something that people historically may not be aware of, is that pharmaceutical companies never entered into this area because of the side effect profile. They didn't want to touch it because of liability. And therefore, the industry decided to circumvent the uh, pharmaceutical process, the FDA approval process, in order to get around this whole liability issue. I've spoke to many pharmaceutical companies during the uh, 80s and 90s and said, you know, what is it that deters you? And, and universally, I was told we don't want the liability because the side effects of an intoxicating drug, which doesn't have a, 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 a distinction between therapeutic dose and intoxicating dose, they didn't want to touch it. And now we have this um, rampant use of it in multiple venues that is um, without any um, without any regulations that really apply to dose, dose frequency, um, doctor shopping, multiple dispensary shopping, and what have you, you know, which gets me back to Ranit's comment about um, uh, the PDMP, because uh, the problem with um, the PDMP is that many of the PDMPs require reporting by pharmacies as well. And if you don't have a, um, a, a, a mechanism for identifying a person who comes into a, a dispensary with cash, it's gonna be very easy to circumvent uh, any sort of regulatory oversight with regard to dispensary or doctor shopping. So I love the idea 
of incorporating it into the PDMP, but you know, in terms of practical um, reduction to practice, I think it may be. It, it would be only the med, the ones that call it medicine. It, it, you're, you, it would not capture all, any recreational use, yes. but anybody who gets a medical card, right? So I'll have a patient come to the emergency department for back pain, and he's so proud of his medical card. You know, he paid $50, he went in, he's so excited, and he got a little vape. And his pressure is blood pressure is 250 over 130. No one ever checked his blood pressure. And how much did that pain, did it really help his pain if he ending up in the ER with back pain? Yeah. And, you know, so it, it's if it if we're going to call it a medicine, charge for it like a medicine and treat it yeah. the way mm -hmm. the standard of medical care goes. Well, maybe um, I should have gone to California for my medical marijuana card because I got <laughs> one. I'm a registered medical marijuana patient in Colorado. It cost me 250 bucks, but I was, I was approved for uh, severe pain in 60 seconds. Uh, so it kind of underscores the ruse of this medical marijuana programs that many states have. And I didn't make anything up. I needed a knee replacement and the telehealth physician didn't look at, didn't ask to see the scars on my knees, didn't ask to see an MRI report, never even asked me my level of pain, which on a day-to-day -day basis is about zero to one on a 10 scale. But within one minute, I was approved for severe pain. So if anybody wants to come to Colorado, we can go, uh, we can go looping if people don't understand the term, because we do not have a PDMP like program in Colorado and I can go from store to store to store and loop and loop and loop and get my two ounces which is a lot of weed at each store in one day and become the local drug dealer uh, yeah. and I have my, my pretty card to to justify that yeah it's, it's it's the same as the early days of the opioid crisis when people without pain went to four or five doctors in the early 2000s got uh, Medicaid co-pave a few dollars and bought um, months worths of supplies of, of Oxycontin and other and hydrocodone analogs, and then just sold them on the street. I've met people who did that and they were clearing a hundred to $200,000 a year in clear untaxable profits because of the untrammeled access to opioids. So the analogy is very, very close. With regard to the toxicity and or the psychoactive effects of the analogs, I can guarantee anybody who's listening to this that you can make analogs and, and, and Delta-8 is more potent than THC. THC is, uh, I'll just give you one sentence of science. It's about what's called 25 nanomolar Ki on the cannabinoid receptor. That means that to, you know, to occupy that receptor that produces all the effects, you need about 25 nanomolar in the extracellular fluid that's floating around. But you can easily design drugs that are much more potent than 25 nanomolar. I've done it with cocaine uh, in, in an effort to uh, find um, medications. You design drugs, Bertha? Pardon? You design drugs? Oh, I've designed over 600. She is such, she's a real scientist. Breaking bad. <laughs> no, seriously, we, we try to, we, 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 we tried desperately to develop medications to treat cocaine addiction. And um, we can design co analogs that are 
1,000 times more potent than cocaine. All you need is a good computer and a, a, somebody intuitive with regard to seeing things in three-dimensional space, and you can design cannabinoids that are much more potent. They're already out there. They're in patents. They're in literature. So my feeling is that in, I'm answering two questions in the chat now. The, any of the analogs of CBD and THC should be in Schedule 1 unless proven otherwise. You know, the analog should be, because CBD can, you know, CBD is one of the rings of THC that's opened up. But if it's an analog of, of uh, CBD in which you reclose the ring, it's going to be psychoactive, just like THC. So there's so many, with fentanyl, one of my chemist friends calculated you can have anywhere between 200 and 1,000 analogs of fentanyl. So that's why we need to adhere to the DEA <clears throat> analog um, scheduling of drugs. Put them into Schedule 1 unless proven otherwise. That's all. And please do not use the, the, um, <clears throat> the debatable argument that because they're in Schedule 1, we can't research them. I can guarantee you that people can research Schedule 1 drugs, period. Yeah. And the, so the you, one point you, on that is um, it's very important to understand that most of these analogs that are psychoactive come mostly from CBD uh, that is mass produced to create a lot of these analogs with those chemical reactions are exothermic. They generate a lot of heat so people can blow themselves up when they're making THC zero. Um, but the farm bill has been the, the opening of the door for a lot of this. Um, and, and I think it's a very important point to understand yeah. that the farm bill has created a new uh, potential disaster in the yeah. analog. Yeah, make no mistake, we did not need hemp in our supply system for rope or any of these other products. The farm bill was another way of circumventing regulations in order to grow um, analogs of marijuana or marijuana itself. I'm told that in some states like Oklahoma, the exterior of these, these uh, grows are hemp and the interior are full-blown marijuana plants. And it's just every single one of these erosions of our CSA, of our Controlled Substance Act, has been designed in order to promote, to develop, to grow, to increase access and profits of marijuana-like uh, compounds. One of the challenges, if I could chime in, and uh, Dr. Lev alluded to the Drug Interactions Project, I want to thank the 17 local pharmacies that have helped us with that in administering over 12,000 info cards regarding consumer protections. The problem with all of this is getting the general public to understand the harms. They're getting all of this propaganda about all the benefits. And unfortunately, what we're saying here today is not making it out into the general public. Now, again, that might be because of media. That might be because maybe some of us are talking over the heads of the common person. We need to have relatable messages to the common person sitting at the PTA meeting, 
sitting at the board of supervisors so they can understand in one or two sentences, why am I talking to my kids about preventing marijuana use? Absolutely. Protect the brain. I couldn't agree with that comment more. I have spent the past, it's more than 30 years now, trying to talk to the public and educating them and developing materials that are accessible. And I've spoken to NIDA on the fact that so much is not accessible in a way that the public should be able to comprehend. And um, I, I think the prevention strategies in our nation currently are very weak compared to what it can be. And yeah, and that's very true. And I, I really believe that, again, if we think of drugs and make the analogy of infectious disease, prevention is the vaccine. You want to prevent a problem before it develops. And so we need to, to capture that. And yep. if we if we protected that brain, well, that growing brain until 25, the scientific age, we would have less addiction of any substance in our country. And what's interesting is we're, we're very happy to talk about fentanyl and opioids and prevention and treatment of that. But no one is serious about talking about prevention of drugs or addiction. You, you can't be serious about it if you don't talk about marijuana. If you don't talk about where things start in medical. So um, Robert Hall, do you let me, Robert, are you on here? Do you want to unmute yourself and ask your pe uh, question in in audio? I'll give that a minute. Um, Robert Hall has a question about um, is there a way to track the number of emergency department cases or hospital yeah. video? I'm not really dressed for a meeting with uh doctors madras and finn but uh <laughs> i'll put um, my hoodie on and you're looking you good <laughs> yeah um one of the things and this sort of ties in i didn't want to enter i didn't want to interrupt because i love the the discussion you guys were having one of the things that frustrates me because uh i'm a media advocacy specialist and it's my mm. some people would say it's my job to dumb things down enough so that the worst dumbest tv reporter in the world can understand it Actually, that's what I say my job description is. And that's a big problem because I, I work within a county system that is run by uh, people who are either bureaucrats or academics, and they always want me to use jargon. They send me to classes that tell me don't use jargon, and then they want me to use jargon, and they want me to use information. And I'm typing away here, and I, I saw you guys uh, uh, Dr. Finn said, if medicine had the side effects that marijuana had, it'd be pulled from the market if a medicine had those side effects. And Dr. Madras followed up and she, I'm typing sound bites here. And it's like <laughs> when, when Dr. Madras, who has a this history, uh, and she says back in the 80s and 90s, the reason pharma didn't get into the marijuana business is because of the side effects of this. And, and those are just gold as, you know, it's kind of like that needs to be part of the discussion because what we hear, the other myth that we hear, and I'm not even getting the question that I typed yet. The other myth that we keep hearing is, oh, they couldn't do it because of research. And I remember 15 years ago, I was looking at 211 research pieces about marijuana and, and listening to people in the other ear bitching about not being able to research because it's schedule one. I'm like, wait, here, where did these papers come from then? Anyway, 
my question was, how do we document? Uh, can we document the number of cases, either uh, ED cases that come in and out or hospital admissions due to drug interactions? Is there a way to track that? Because I think, uh, again, what the county tells me to do is you got to have data points. Right. And so we don't have this. It's kind of we are seeing a problem before the medical community even knows about it. Right. So we can't we it's the same thing that happened with opioids when we were saying, oh, so many people are coming into the emergency department um, because of opioid um, addiction. At first, the numbers were low. Well, we don't have that problem. I don't see that. But once there was awareness for that problem, um, then we saw the numbers go up because people were uh, the medical community was aware of it and documenting it better. Right now, we are, if you ask that question, you won't get many numbers because the medical community is not even aware of these drug interactions. So they're not even asking um, about marijuana use consistently on patients who are admitted. You know, um, It's not part of the standard medical workup, so you're not gonna pick that up. But once we create the awareness to, to look for this diagnosis, um, we'll see it more. Um, uh, Joe does a, uh, an amazing report card every year of the number of emergency department visits um, in the county related to cannabis. And that's without us even knowing, the, and when I say we, I mean the medical community, knowing to document um, cannabis. And so we're seeing 29 a day. It's going to go up to almost 40 a day. And it'll be, go up even more once there's an awareness. Um, so, think, but right um, now, if you ask to answer your question, Robert, we don't have we we don't have that data right now. I think one thing is that we can quantify how many marijuana related visits, either primary or secondary, based on ICD-10 codes. So I work with Rob in the same prevention system. You're right, Dr. Lev, that number recently went from 29 ER visits a day to 39. So that's a powerful statement, not necessarily just drug interactions. That's things like cannabinoid hyperemesis, psychosis, and other things that involve high potency marijuana, whatever brings people to the hospital. But again, you have to have somebody collecting the data. We have poison control numbers, emergency room, treatment admits, everything is heading in the wrong direction when it comes to marijuana use. I'm going to interrupt, uh, interject here. Um, you hit the nail on the head, Joe. Um, I published a paper a few years ago that one small to medium hospital in Colorado Springs lost $20 million in six years just from marijuana-related ER visits. Um, if you take that across the state, hypothetically, that was a half a billion dollars or $83 million a year loss in healthcare dollars in an already strained healthcare system. Uh, there were intrinsic flaws to the study, and this kind of gets back to this point on ED uh, emergency medicine, is coding. Uh, I didn't realize how terrible and complicated hospital coding is. I, I'm a very simplistic thinker. I said, here's a positive drug test, and I got rid of, I didn't realize how much polysubstance abuse was going on in my community until I looked at the hundreds of thousands of drug tests that had a whole bunch of stuff in it. And I got rid of all the stuff that had everything cannabis plus, and I just looked at cannabis only. And I said, okay, I have a data service, a patient medical record number. Okay, hospital, give me the bill. It took me a year and a half to get that data because they couldn't cross-reference it. And then we had to stop at the, at the number because when a patient comes in, and, and Dr. Lev can attest to this, 
cannabis toxicity may not be number one diagnosis. It may be down the road or cannabis abuse. Maybe yeah, it's down. almost never number one. It'll be psychosis because of whatever or and vomiting so we, because of yeah, whatever. We, a, we cut our line at five diagnoses. So even I think the number 29 to 39 is probably low. Um, I bet it's a lot higher than that yeah. just because of the coding. Right. Because you'll have atrial fibrillation or you'll have a heart attack and then cannabis will be in cannabis later. number six. Right. We didn't count those. So I think it's very difficult to answer Joe's question on tracking the drug interactions, let alone the admissions, because it's a coding issue. And every doctor might look at the same case very differently and code it very differently. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Renee, may I just interject two, of course. two more comments? One is um, the need for public education. In a Colorado study, showed that um, about seventy percent of dispensaries were recommending marijuana for pregnancy of the medical dispensaries. That was in Colorado. And, and that's in Colorado. Yes, and women who use it. Um, the, the, the most of the women who use it get their information from um, these dispensaries where the recommendations are not based on science, they're based on the personal views of the butt tenders. And the women who use it, who are more prone to using it during pregnancy are women who get their information from the media, from chat rooms, from uh, Facebook, rather than from scientific evidence. So I think it's really critical uh, for public education along the full spectrum, pregnancy and what have you. That's number one. Number two, somebody asked if it's just a dose matter with regard to potency. It never is just a dose matter. It can, a dose is critical. You know, 90% THC at 200 milligrams is very different than 10% a, a THC um, at 10 milligrams of THC and dronabinol, but the structure is also important because certain structural components of the cannabinoid molecule can bind to the cannabinoid receptor differently and cause different signal transduction, which could make it much more potent or much less potent. Uh, with regard to drug-drug interactions, my husband drank grapefruit juice once um, in copious amounts during a very hot day and ended up in a coma with uh, 14 units of blood transfused into him. And, and the residents taking care of him asked me if I would call him, meaning would I let him die at that point? <clears throat> that was 10 years ago. And it was because of a drug interaction with an anticoagulant and grapefruit juice. So I, I've lived this firsthand and know how dreadful it is. One question is, can a, a fentanyl test pick up all the analogs of fentanyl? Depends on what the pharmacophore is for the test. You know, if the test is a certain part of the molecule and some chemist shifts that part of the molecule, forget it. It won't pick it up. And as soon as you develop a test that picks up 100 fentanyl analogs, <clears throat> somebody will design an opioid that is not even a, a, you know, a regular. So I, I think every one of these issues is so complicated and it boils down to a very simple thing. The less we use, the less access we have, the safer our society. Yeah. 
Thank you, um, Dr. Madras. Right. Supply, supply matters. I'm really amazed that the medical community is not more outraged. I have two daughters in medical school and, you know, they it's not easy to get into medical school. It's not easy to get out. The amount of material that they have to cram down is a lot more than when I had to do that 30 years ago. Um, and there's a lot of scrutiny in being practicing medicine and prescribing medications. And yet all that goes out the door and you could like, oh, here's some of my medicine uh, with somebody with no education, no background, nothing. And, and, and that this is allowed by, by the medical community is, is what's amazing that, that there's I've, not, uh, that's not protected. I've been terribly <laughs> disappointed in the medical community. Um, although I think the pendulum is swinging uh, I mean, the state medical societies of New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Delaware, and Ohio came out in unison saying they they opposed legalization, but the media mob disregarded it. Um, I mean, other state medical societies, other organizations, uh, we have a laundry list of, of societies that don't support the use of marijuana, especially ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the American Academy of Pediatrics. Etc. But there's no aggregation of these medical voices to be. I feel like I'm on. I'm in Whoville sometimes. I mean, I know all you little Who's out there, uh, Joe and, and Dr. Madras and Dr. Lev. But we don't have a Horton. Uh, that's what we need is a Horton who could who could spread the word. That's how I feel sometimes. Yeah. Well, we lived. We lived this, and really, I got into the issue of marijuana because of the issue of opioids right people we we as a medical community were pushed to prescribe opioids and and i was young at the time and thought okay this is this is what you do and i wrote bad prescriptions but then i learned my lesson from that and in the peak of that we were saying oh marijuana is okay and i thought wait i'm going to repeat the same mistake again i just made a mistake in my career i'm going to do the same thing um and and repeat history and it's like no this time i'm going to be smarter um, about it. I think uh, Julie um, Shamash has a question. So Julie, if you um, unmute yourself, I think you had a question on fentanyl. Hi, I just wanted to know if hospitals are testing for fentanyl when they're doing a standard toxicology test when someone comes in with a suspected overdose. And Julie, you are amazing because I know you know the answer to that because <laughs> you have um, a bill that we're working on, uh, Tyler's Law, because we learn that a lot of hospitals are not testing for um, fentanyl. They test for opiates. Oh, um, fentanyl is an opioid, but drug tests um, do just the um, opiates, the, the, the plant-based um, um, that comes from morphine or codeine, um, but it does not include any of the synthetic opioids such as methadone, fentanyl, tramadol. And so now that we know that causes of death, overdose deaths, 60% of all deaths is from illicit fentanyl. Uh, when you come to the hospital and you need to get a, a drug screen, it includes um, the federal five, marijuana, cocaine, amphetamine, opiates, and PCP. It should include fentanyl. And, that, and we learned um, and created a mm -hmm. toolkit that we have on our CCR uh, website on how to do that. But really every hospital in America should be including fentanyl um, in their drug screen. It shouldn't be the federal five, it should be the federal six 
Um, and um, we uh, hope to have um, a, a law in California that'll make that happen. But really anybody who's listening, any community in America, um, we have a toolkit available. You can bring that to your hospital. It's as easy as buying the reagent and, and making that a protocol. It's not hard. Um, it's just a matter of doing it. And um, so thank you, Julie, for that question and for your advocacy to make that happen. I, and, and Julie, do you want to tell us about um, Tyler and why you're so passionate about this issue? Yes. Uh, three years ago, my 19-year-old son was living at a sober living and had overdosed. They revived him with Narcan and took him to the emergency room and his drug test turned out negative. And he said he took too much Imodium for an upset stomach. But as we know, substance abuse users don't always tell the truth. So when I got to the hospital, I asked the treating doctor three times, are you sure his test came out negative? Are you sure? Did you test for fentanyl? And I didn't know Tyler to use fentanyl. I had just heard about it from him that some other guys at one of his sober livings had used it because it comes out of your system quickly. And the emergency room doctor assured me that their opioid test would pick up fentanyl. And the next day he was released and the next day he went back to the sober living and overdosed in the bathroom uh, from smoking fentanyl. And my point as a mom is, had I known he had fentanyl in his system, I wouldn't have sent him to a sober living. I would have sent him to a higher level of care, a detox or even a residential treatment. So that was the impetus for getting this law. And you asked the doctor, the ER doctor, you know, was it negative? And he, he, right. He told you, yeah, it was negative for opiates, but a lot of physicians and, and, and pharmacy people, the medical community doesn't, is not really aware that those drug screens, if you say opiate, they think, oh, well, it includes fentanyl, but it doesn't. Um, yeah. So even the head of the ER, when I questioned him, thought that their test covered, it wasn't until I put in touch with the lab that they explained it to them. So it was just a big, uh, I don't fault the doctor because it, he just didn't know. It was just a big uh, miscommunication. Right. To well, show you how, um, how the, the, uh, the wheels of government run slowly in 2006 at our fentanyl forum, because we had a 1000 annual death from it. Uh, I held a fentanyl forum and we recommended that every emergency department in every hospital include fentanyl in their testing. Now we're 15 years later and it is still problematic. Yeah, and it's a big problem too, I think for people that are getting drugs that are poisoned with fentanyl because somebody will be brought into the emergency room for a Xanax overdose or what they think is Oxycontin and they don't realize their supply is actually tainted with fentanyl. Yep. Thank you, Julie, and for your advocacy and for your voice. It's unrelenting, um, but it but that's what it takes, and you're doing it. And um, again, you're my hero for 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 doing that. So I'm, I'm happy thank to help where for, I can for the toolkit that's so thorough. <laughs> yeah. um, other other questions that we're getting here, um, uh, Hina, do you want to come on and ask your question? Sure. Hi, Dr. Liv. Um, it's nice to meet you. I know we work a little bit uh, with opioid stewardship at Scripps Health. Um, great podcast, by the way. Really excited. Great. Thank you so much for joining us, Hina Ahmed from Scripps. Yes. Um, you know, I just find this whole debate. Um, I was at a pharmacy conference and, you know, there was a lot of discussion about Ryan's law and, you know, allowing hospitals uh, 
to now allow um, in its legislation to allow uh, medicinal marijuana to be given for terminally ill patients. And um, you know, while we talk about the efficacy of you know, does it really work? Or you know, compared to other medications, I just you know, I found myself sort of thinking about that question. And obviously, this is uh, you know a big discussion happening at all healthcare organizations. It's a Schedule One, so. You know, how do you, uh, in, in terms of a lot of pharmacy discussions and handling, but uh, what are your thoughts on that? I was just kind of curious. Well, I think we have um, a, the head of the pain society here, <laughs> a physician who can answer that question is, does a, you know, a great question. And we have a law that's trying to, to push this um, of having, uh, allowing patients to use marijuana in the hospital as end of life care for pain. Um, Dr. Finn. Uh, Ken has uh, dropped out because he has to see patients, so he's oh. gone. Oh, no. Okay, all right. Dr. Madras. <laughs> well, you know, my feeling is that um, if, if a drug is not FDA approved, it simply should not be in a hospital setting, period. I think we have to either adhere to what our FDA guidelines say and FDA approval process or there is no end, there's no boundary after that. Because as I, as I said in my introductory remarks, we're seeing hallucinogens mm -hmm. becoming medicalized in terms of clinical trials, in terms of physicians jumping in. There are 300 companies now that are established to try to promote hallucinogens. And what's going, and if, if you know, if, if LSD is not approved, but psilocybin is, What's going to stop people from saying, I need LSD at end stages of life or Ibogaine or some other? If we start the slippery slope of disregarding our FDA guidelines, it's not going to end at marijuana. It's going to end at an open-ended access to all drugs for all purposes without the rigor that is essential to, for example, approve a, vac a vaccine or an antibiotic or an analgesic or any of the other drugs. I am deeply concerned about this erosion. Can I also make a comment? Because I, I hear this quite often, you know, what if it's a terminal illness? If it's a terminal illness, from my standpoint, what, what you need to get through the day, go right ahead. The problem is, is we don't see the terminally ill going into the marijuana storefronts. We see young, healthy people with developing brains buying 86% THC. That's what we see. We always get caught up in these debates. Of course, I don't want anybody suffering if you have terminal cancer or AIDS wasting syndrome. Use whatever you need to get through the day. The problem is most of the people we see entering these places are perfectly healthy individuals that need to have and stay clear of this until their brain is developed until 25. And well, Hina's point is, well, they want it in the hospital setting. They want to bring marijuana and allow you to smoke in the hospital. I don't know why that's something. Well, yeah, is, we saw this with Joseph. I mean, we, we don't allow smoking of tobacco products in the hospital, not even in the mental health wards. We took away tobacco. And now we're putting in um, cannabis products. So I, I don't understand um, that. And I, I would hope that the pharmacy voice says, you know, this is not a 
acceptable science. This is dangerous to patients. Um, and, um, it, you know, if you're at home on hospice, that's a very different thing. But we, we know um, from studies, UC Davis looked at 20 legal dispensaries bought products from all these illegal dispensary, 100% of them were contaminated with E. coli, aspergillus. Can you imagine? We already have, um, you know, an infectious disease problem in a hospital setting, and now you're bringing more to a pharmacy where it can contaminate other medications. Um, I think that that, that, that is, I would hope that the pharmacist would have a, a strong um, science-backed um, um, opposition to that. Well, yeah, I mean, technically it could be considered out of scope too, because it's not really a medication. Think about it. It's a schedule one. <laughs> right. I think, I think that's where it gets even. But, but even if it think? was, let's say we didn't have the schedule problem and we didn't yeah. have that, we don't have the science. And yet we do have the science. I think mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Madras looked up, we have 50,000 publications <laughs> and, <laughs> and enough science today on the harms. Yeah. We don't have enough science mm -hmm. on how it's wonderful. Yeah, and on clinicaltrials.gov, there are anywhere between three and 600 clinical trials mm -hmm. currently on marijuana or cannabinoids. That means clinical trials to prove or disprove its therapeutic benefit or some other thing, medications to treat um, addiction and so on. So anybody who says that, it, you know, you can't do any research you can do clinical research, you can do basic science research. All you have to do is have resolve. It's the same as doing animal research where you have 78 pages of protocol to write. And that's from a lady who like made a bunch of drugs herself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it kind of goes back to the point, right? That they, like the medical, like how can we ignore this? You know, like yeah. I think this law is essentially, uh, you know, it's a slippery slope. It's promoting the use of it for medical patients. Yes. So then you wonder yes. what's next. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you need it, use it at home at hospice. That's different than, you know, causing potential infections. Um, mm -hmm. Can you imagine the JCO inspection of your hospital with that? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you know, the, 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 and in young people, when they were polled on why they use marijuana, the vast majority of reasons given the highest percentage was because it's a medicine. Therefore, it's safe and it's good for you. Thank you. Um, Jay LeBlanc, uh, I'd love to hear your question. Hi, I can't start my video because I don't have a lot of bandwidth, but I want to thank you guys for having this podcast. It's awesome. I have two questions. I, the, I had some previous questions about THC analogs, but they were basically answered. But I'm, you know, looking at different cases, it seems like it's a plausible scenario that, you know, people who use marijuana, they can get very anxious and paranoid, and in turn, they use Xanax. And I'm just wondering, you know, for them to get their Xanax or or fake. Xanax that's usually on the black market and if it's spiked with fentanyl or some kind of opioid is that sort of one of the drivers for the opioid epidemic you know all these people dying is that is that is that a plausible scenario have y'all seen that I the yes I have seen that in the emergency department people who are anxious for whatever they're, they're withdrawing from their marijuana 
because withdrawals from marijuana feels like anxiety. Um, withdrawal from opiates is different and withdrawal from alcohol is different and withdrawal from marijuana is feeling like an anxiety attack and you feel like you need it. So then you need some benzodiazepines like a, a Xanax. So, and then that could be laced in fentanyl and and, and we've I definitely seen that's very sad. Um, but I don't know if that's the entire driver uh, of the um, of the drug crisis that we have in our country right now. It's because fentanyl has flooded the market. It's it's cheap. It's um, precursors are coming from China in uh, being assembled in Mexico and and brought over our borders. And it's in everything. Uh, it's in marijuana, it's in the Xanax pills, it's oxycodone pills, the hydrocodone pills, it's in meth, it's in cocaine. Um, it, it, it's just in, and you don't know. So you're really, like they say, playing Russian roulette anytime you're using a drug that doesn't come from the pharmacy, it could have fentanyl in it. Um, right. But as far as marijuana priming the brain at the young age um, in middle school to then, I uh, again, uh, Dr. Madras will tell you the science and I'll just tell you the clinical experiences. I have not met um, a person who has a substance use disorder and uses fentanyl that didn't start with, with marijuana. So, yeah. and then you can back that up with the, the chemistry, Dr. Madras. Well, it's fascinating the, you know, you cannot do these studies ethically in people, but they have been done in rodents by Yasmin Hurd, and just this, this year it was confirmed by someone else. So <clears throat> there are two time frames. One is if a male rat, I have to use the animal, <laughs> uh, is exposed to THC or um, marijuana smoke long before conception, long before conception, during adolescence, and then never, never touches it again, and then conceives, uh, I mean, his mate conceives, that offspring from that mating ends up having very profound changes in the brain dopamine system, and the offspring are much greater heroin seekers. The same is true for adolescent exposure to THC with regard to um, rats. If they're exposed to THC, then they're removed from the drug, allowed to grow up, and then offered heroin. They will, they will consume it at gangbuster rates compared to animals that have not. Now, what does the human data say? A new study that was published this year shows that uh, this is from the ABCD studies, that if mothers use marijuana during pregnancy, the, um, the likelihood of offspring to use marijuana is greater. This is actually not ABC, it's a different study, but so that, and, and the likelihood to use poly drugs, other drugs, so that it is really important to remember that even as an adolescent, besides what it can do to your brain itself, it could influence multi-generations chemically, not just culturally or you know, environmentally. And I think this is something that we don't have enough data to put the imprimatur of certainty on it but it's beginning to look more and more like there are epigenetic changes that transfer to the next generation that can influence 
brain dopamine systems, which are critical for, um, for triggering reward and, and salience of drug experiences, but also for um, triggering opioid-seeking behavior. Thank you with that. Um, we had a lot of great questions and uh, I think it's time to find out about uh, high truth hopes for 2022 and beyond. Um, I think so I got some of those questions and not, maybe not all of them, but I actually, the ones that I didn't answer, I think I'm going to use a neck following uh, podcast. I think there's a question um, uh, Alma, you asked about DEA, and uh, I have an upcoming uh, episode with the head of the DEA, the previous administration. So uh, we have some, we will get those answered to you. Um, but uh, now let's uh, kind of have a little closure and find about what your hopes are for the future. And Dr. Madras, um, what my are your high truth hopes? My hopes for the future is that our society, our government, our population can learn lessons from the past. The lessons we learned from opioids is that poor science drove untrammeled prescriptions for opioids due to huge investment by pharma, due to medical community not being aware of the, the, the lack of evidence for opioid use for chronic um, conditions that were non-cancer, not acute pain. And all the medical associations jumped in and facilitated, facilitated the prescribing of opioids. And I can, you know, there are 32 causes of this opioid crisis of which I, I'm very close to writing a book on this because it's so important. The same was true for marijuana in, in the sense that um, we started with medicalization. We started to expand its indications to, in some cases like Illinois, 40 different medical uses for which there was zero, zero evidence for use. And the hype of the media and the hype of, of uh, talking points just normalized the use. We're seeing the same with, with hallucinogens now. Just the beginnings, we're at the threshold where we're seeing a lot of uh, people interested in their use for psychiatric conditions without understanding what the consequences can, can be for the greater good of our society, including the same people who are advocating for medicalization are also advocating for legalization. And so my concern is that we are along this trajectory which can cause much greater public health crises than we've even seen in the past. And if we're not going to put an end to it as, the as we the people, as opposed to the, uh, the interested um, parties who want to profit from it, we're going to see a generation or two or three lost to, um, to the use and the overuse of these drugs. And now to Joe Eberstein. Joe, your hopes and high truth hopes. Well, my, my hopes are right here with what's happening. You know, this discussion is happening because a lot of people got together to make it happen and we still care. 
And I see that in the community. You can't always believe what you see in the media. I just attended a community meeting. People are becoming aware. This is all about money. That's really all this is about. It's about making another industry that's going to make Altria Group, which used to be Philip Morris, a lot of money. That's really what this is about. All of the data and science, unfortunately, can't top the lobbyists that are paying our politicians to do whatever they want to bolster this industry. So even though we have the science and the data, the real work needs to be in the community with the schools to get kids to not want to use in the first place. That's really to understand the harms enough to not want to use it. And I do see young people entering our field, people like myself who have passion and energy for it, no matter how many times they talk about it, they're energized because we're dealing with our kids and our kids are looking to us to make proper public health decisions, not declaring marijuana an essential business during a respiratory pandemic, utterly ludicrous decision. So remember, it starts young, it starts with the kids. I am hopeful, we have a lot of people here in the San Diego County Prevention System who are working very hard. Please get involved, join the PTA, join the school board. If you don't like what's happening, join the city council, run for elected position and just be out there and don't let them stop you. This isn't about equity, this isn't about justice, this is about an industry making money. That's all that it's about. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Madras, Dr. Finn, Joe. I too have high hopes for the future. We, we were able to solve a problem with tobacco. We made a lot of improvements with that similar model. Traffic fatalities were an outcry in our country and we made amazing improvements with a circumferential approach. Um, with uh, seat belts and better roads and better cars. And we focused and tracked that improvement year after year and continue to do so. And so we, we did that with traffic fatalities. We did it with tobacco. We were doing it with COVID. Um, and, and I think that we can do this also with addiction. We need to protect the growing brain, as you've all mentioned, with exposure to drugs, any drugs that hinder brain growth um, as a front end problem. Um, if we were not exposing that delicate brain to addictive chemicals before age 25, we could decrease the total number of people addicted in the entire country. But we also have to treat people who have an addiction with compassion, science, hope, um, and remove the infectious source of drugs that is entering our, uh, our country. And, and public safety is very important for that as well. And if we tackle drugs like we tackled infectious disease and traffic fatalities, um, we can do this. And in the meantime, like Joe was saying, don't underestimate the power of the individual, the power of your voice in your community. You absolutely matter and make a difference. And you're my hero. Um, so thank you to everyone who took the time away from busy lives to talk about issues of addiction. Thank you to our participants for thoughtful and smart questions and for the important work you do boots on the ground. If you didn't get your question in um, today on this podcast, please contact me. I would love to have you on future uh, podcasts. We got a whole season two to do, so I'd love to continue with your questions. And thank you to our experts, Dr. Bertha Madras, Dr. Ken Finn, and Joe Eberstein. I bless you all with a healthy new year with happiness and success. Mm -hmm.
Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, and we hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths. Thank you.